and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky, And I am Janelle. And we are in full-on pollen season. (laughs) (laughs) And I am fucking feeling it right now. We are not sick. Um, We are just very (laughs) snurfily. Yeah. It's that time in the Midwest where literally my allergies are going haywire, but I'm still here. I mean, isn't that all the time except for the dead of winter? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the dead of winter when instead you have a cold. Yes. <laughs> we have a great show for you today. I what are we talking about? Oh yes. Okay. This is I your episodes now. that you tell me. I know. Me. <laughs> this is it's still very early in the morning mm-hmm. as we're recording this. But I'm ready to go, I think. Okay. I've at least had a cup of coffee before we started this time. Yeah, I didn't because I'm going to make it rough for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) It's too hot for coffee. It's just too hot. (laughs) Yeah. Mine's like like room temperature now, which is like fine. Anyway, let's head over to the newsroom. This week, our news is actually from our state of Illinois, from um, NPR. So I don't know if you heard about this, but on July 15th, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed into law a bill that bars police from lying to underage kids during an interrogation. Yes, I did see this. <laughs> um, so our lovely state of Illinois has often been referred to as the false confession capital of the U.S. <laughs> because Among other wonderful names. <laughs> right. But we have one of the highest number of exonerations and specifically exonerations of people falsely who falsely confess to crimes. So from this is from the Innocence Project. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's not. I well, it's good that that they're being set free, but it's yes. bad that they were in jail in the first place. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So this is from the Innocence Project. Quote, in Illinois alone, there have been 100 wrongful convictions predicated on false confessions, including 31 involving people under 18 years of age. And as I'm sure many of you know, it's been a common tactic among law enforcement to promise leniency or insinuate that they possess incriminating evidence. So at least for minors, that is no longer going to be allowed as of January 1st. Mm -hmm. There were two other criminal justice reform bills that were also signed. Senate Bill 64, which makes anything said or done during restorative justice practices privileged information. And Senate Bill 2129 allows the state's attorney of a county to petition for resentencing of an offender if the original sentence is no longer advances the interest of justice. There's actually there's three. I'm sorry. The third one is House Bill 3587, which creates a resentencing task force to study ways to reduce Illinois prison population through the resentencing of offenders. So all of these go into effect January 1st. So I'm hoping that the resentencing part is going to be about letting people with drug convictions go. Yeah. Well, since we're I, a legal state now. <laughs> I think so. Since we've become legal, I'm fairly certain that there has been like an application process to have your sentence uh-huh. reviewed in reference to those charges. Because I think that was part of the original like plan when it was when marijuana was legalized in the state right Mm -hmm. but i do hope this allows a wider look at like all of the charges Mm -hmm. for that kind of stuff or if it was you know i think sometimes there are cases of over sentencing 
also oh, a for lot sure. of cases of oversentencing. Mm-hmm. So we will see. But I always like to highlight the criminal justice stuff, especially I feel like in our state, we have a lot of, of listeners in Illinois. So it's nice to see some more steps forward, especially considering like all the stuff that was that was passed this past January. Thoughts? Any other thoughts? <laughs> more things like that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we will see. But for now, we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill. Which this week we are actually talking about something on Peacock. Okay. Which I found interesting. I don't know. I have, have Peacock, you... but I don't watch it too terribly much. No. And on the plus side, it is a free streaming service. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I mean, I'm sure it's ad supported, but like, there's that. But yeah. they have a six-episode series called John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. Yes, they which do. Which, <laughs> if, if you are a longtime listener of the show, you know that John Wayne Gacy is, like, the... Vicky's first love. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Murder God, love. no. Murder case love? What? <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to... how you. It's, like, the case that got me interested in true crime, I would mm-hmm. say see our episode about that (laughs) yes yes and that was a while ago too i think yes it was but it's about the totally awful killing spree of john wayne gacy who murdered at least 33 young men and boys before hiding their bodies in the crawl space under his house or in like other spots on his property he was convicted and sentenced to death and was executed by lethal injection at statesville correctional center in 1994 But the series kind of compiles a bunch of interviews that Gacy did after his arrest. It also sort of asks some questions that have never been answered. Like, was there more than one person that helped Mm -hmm. him? Like, That's a big one. Yeah. They also look at, like, did the police really put in a legitimate effort to investigate? No. A lot of the victims (laughs) were never identified. With some of the most recent identifications of, of... some of the bodies happening within like the last five years, I think. Mm-hmm. So there's that. If you're looking for something that isn't on a normal streaming platform, I'm anxious to see what some of these other newer platforms will come up with for like true crime. Cause mm-hmm. right now it's, do- it's dominated by Netflix, HBO, and probably Hulu. I would yeah, say. Hulu has a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, Check it out. It's free. That's plus if you want some true crime. A classic. I was like, I haven't been on a true crime like watch yet this past couple of weeks because I was, I dove deep into Fear Street because if you know anything about me, you know I love R.L. Stein. All things Goosebumps, all things Fear Street. So I was preoccupied. (laughs) But I did see, I did catch that a little bit of that Gacy one. Yeah, yeah. All right, this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. This week, we are talking about murder. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) Would you expect anything less? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's pretty pretty gruesome. Consistent? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But that's what we're all here for, right? Yes. So let's talk about it. Okay. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) So I am going to be, actually, I guess I should say, today we are looking at Crimes of Inheritance, Mm -hmm. which, you know, there's plenty of perfect examples of this. Things like the Menendez brothers, wasn't that an inheritance thing? And I don't know, there's tons of cases where people kill other people because they have... We've covered a couple. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to look at this, and I am going to be talking about the murder of Rick and Susanna Wamsley. Rick and Susie met in high school, where Rick was an athlete. And after high school, Susie studied art at Oklahoma Christian College, while Rick went to Oklahoma State. The two got married in 1978. They had their first child, Sarah, that year. And then they had their second child, Andrew, in 1984. 
Now, Rick was a CPA who worked for a couple oil companies in Houston, Salt Lake City, and Dallas. But, like, the family itself was really close. I saw a lot of times they were described as, like, the perfect couple, the perfect family on the block. That's never a good omen when people say that you're so perfect. (laughs) Yes. And they were pretty wealthy. So they were definitely never, like, lacking for anything. They also were described as, like, their entire life revolved around their kids. They wanted to make their kids happy. But this perfect family was completely destroyed when on December 11th, 2003, police were called to the Wamsley residence. At 11.40 p.m., a 911 call was made from the Wamsley's home, but there wasn't anybody on the line. So they they were like either the person called and just didn't say anything or they just called and left the phone sitting on the side table and just left. But police responded anyway and went and knocked on the door, didn't get an answer. They did notice, however, that the garage door was open and that the door to the house from the garage was also open. So they went into the house through the garage and discovered Susie's dead body on the living room couch. She had been shot in the left ear and stabbed 18 times in the chest and the neck. Rick was discovered in the entryway wearing only boxer shorts. He had been shot in the face and back and stabbed over 21 times. Yikes. Yeah. Upon further investigation, police discovered two sets of bloody shoe prints in the living room, dining room, and entryway. But there weren't any, like, signs of forced entry. It didn't look like anything had been taken. They later found there was still, like, $1,500 in a dresser upstairs somewhere. You know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. it didn't really look like a It didn't look like a break-in. burglary or anything like yeah. that, yeah. Now, the news of these murders hit the surrounding community like a ton of bricks, Although the authorities claimed that it had been an isolated incident, there were a lot of people that were, like, freaking out that there were murderers running around because there was this horrible (laughs) murder. And police, unfortunately, at the time, they weren't really able to give out a ton of information because they were, like, still investigating. And a lot of times when these things start out in the very beginning, you just don't get a lot of information. So people were panicking, but it also sort of started a lot of rumors about what happened. The main one being that they were like involved in the witness protection program and that the murder had been a hit, which is not. It doesn't sound like it at all. Not it. (laughs) But everything sort of started unraveling after it was discovered that the family, like I said, was incredibly wealthy. They had taken out a $1 million life insurance policy along with a $1.65 million estate that had kind of become this point of conflict within the family. Actually, later, their oldest daughter, Sarah, would file a petition in court to try and block her brother, Andrew, from inheriting any of the assets for reasons that will become clear. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, I wonder. Hmm. It was also discovered that Andrew, who was 19 at the time of the murders, was dating this girl named Chelsea Richardson, who was somebody that Rick and Susie were really not fans of. I saw it talked about a lot as like the Wamsleys being this sort of like more wealthy, affluent family. Chelsea Richardson coming from this working class background and it being sort of like a... I don't know, like a class thing. I'm just like, yeah. I, don't, I, I, I don't really get the impression that that's it, but I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, police did discover a clump of hair in Rick's fist when they had investigated the scene, which was immediately sent out for DNA testing. When it came back, it was revealed that the hair belonged to Susanna Teledano, 
who is Chelsea Richardson's best friend. Okay. (laughs) A warrant was issued and Toledano was promptly arrested. When she spoke with police, she alleged that a man named Hilario Cardenas, who worked as a night manager at an IHOP, had given her the gun that was used in the killings. Cardena was also arrested, and not long after, both Chelsea Richardson and Andrew Wamsley were also arrested on solicitation of murder after Cardenas alleged that they had asked him to murder Andrew's parents. All four of them were held on $1 million bond while police continued to investigate. When the indictments came down nearly seven months after the murders, police were accusing Andrew and the others in a murder plot to get their hands on the Wamsley's $1 million insurance as well as their other assets. Andrew, Chelsea, Toledano, the three of them were charged with capital murder and Cardenas was charged with uh, conspiracy to commit murder. Okay. So you know how in high school... You went to an IHOP to, like, smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and hang out into the wee hours of the morning because it was open for 24 hours. Did you ever do that? Yeah. I mean, not an IHOP. We had other things around here that we did that at, but yeah. Right. (laughs) Angelo's? We went to Angelo's and did that. That was our main thing for a long time. We went to the truck stop because we're we're garbage people and then, like, another little tiny restaurant in Crystal Lake. That was there. Yeah. So that is kind of how the four of these guys hooked up was at an IHOP because the kids in high school, (laughs) this part of the story, I was like, so relatable. The kids in high school would go to the IHOP and play Yu-Gi-Oh! And (laughs) sometimes play D&D. At the IHOP in fr- to the wee hours of the morning. So this is kind of like how this group all met up. Um, <laughs> I was like, all right, they're playing Yu-Gi-Oh! Yep. in an IHOP. Sure. That sounds like 2003. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, a clear picture began to emerge of what happened that night. Investigators believe that by the time the 911 call had been placed, Rick and Susie had been dead for 8 to 12 hours at least. Andrew and Chelsea and Susanna entered the home using a garage door controller. They walked in through the garage and found Susie sleeping on the couch in the main level where she was shot at close range, killing her instantly. Rick, who had been sleeping in the master bedroom, heard the shots and ran out to confront the attackers. They shot at him as he was running out of the doorway and missed. There were two shots and both of them missed. And Rick continued to like charge forward at the at his attackers. He was hit with a third shot as he was coming through the hallway where this struggle started. And he was at this point, like, stabbed repeatedly in the chest and arms and back and face. The struggle continued down the hallway and into the living room before he finally collapsed in the entryway. And then after they were sure that Rick was dead, they decided to go back to Susie on the couch and make sure that she was dead, which is like how she got stabbed so many, many times. Absolutely awful. Like, the scene was just this horrible... If you ever Google this case, be careful, because there's... Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. Crime scene. Meh. <laughs> it's a lot. So, police were not able to find any of the weapons that were used in um, the slayings, and they were also unable to really like for sure determine who fired any of the shots it was also in the course of the investigation discovered that this was one of like two or three attempts that the group had actually made on the wamsleys in the months prior to this 
one of these instances happened in November, uh, November, where like the afternoon of the night, somebody had attempted a drive-by shooting on their car while they were driving down (laughs) Interstate 35, but missed. They just like hit the car in the back a couple of times. So this was not the first time that they had attempted something. And they did report the the drive-by shooting to the police. So the police had record of that as well. So fingerprints found on the phone point to Andrew as the one who eventually dialed 911. Investigators don't really think this was done out of, like, guilt, but rather a way to expedite the finding of his parents' bodies. There was this really interesting quote that I saw in a few places from Mansfield detective Ralph Standifer. He said, quote, he was so focused on the money aspect. The longer it dragged on, he wasn't going to get his money. I think he had a really skewed concept of how that happened. Like your parents are deceased and the next week you get a check. End quote. Okay. Uh, Not exactly, but. (laughs) Right. But it seemed like that's he was just like, okay. I'll kill my parents and then the money will money, just money, get money. Directed, <laughs> direct deposited into my account. <laughs> like, no, 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 that's not that's so wrong. <laughs> so in January 2005, Susan Toledano pleaded guilty to murder and agreed to testify against Andrew and Chelsea in order to avoid the death penalty. And... On May 26, 2006, Susanna Toledano was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. She's currently at the William P. Hobby unit in Texas and is eligible for parole in 2034. Andrew's trial happened in 2006, where he kind of, he attempted to claim that he wasn't motivated by like the money but mm-hmm. instead that he murdered his parents in retaliation for years of emotional and physical abuse. Oh my God. Okay. Right. There really wasn't evidence to support this at all. Mm-hmm. And with the testimony provided by Toledano, the jury found this claim unreliable and they also found him guilty. Andrew was sentenced to life in prison and is currently at the John B. Connolly Maximum Security Prison in Texas and is eligible for parole in 2044. Chelsea's trial went pretty similarly, although she was sort of painted as like the mastermind behind the whole thing and this kind of like controlling personality that really sort of orchestrated everything. The jury deliberated for three hours before finding her guilty, and then it only took another two hours for them to decide that she was, in fact, a danger to the community and sentenced Chelsea to death by lethal injection. However, Chelsea, during her her appeals process, the, the courts found that the prosecution had withheld evidence during the trial. And so for this, Chelsea's sentence was commuted to life in prison in December 2011. So currently she is incarcerated at the Dr. Lane Murray Prison in Texas and is eligible for parole in 2044. And then Cardenius uh, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to murder and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. He was eligible for parole in 2014, although it was denied in 2016, 2017, and most recently denied in April of 2021. So his next parole hearing is set for April of, of 2022, April of next year. And that is the story of the Wamsley murders. Wowzers. Yes. Yikes. Well, folks, I am going to tell you an old-timey spaghetti western of a tale today. Oh, Um, boy. We're going to be going back in the Wayback Time Machine. And we're going to talk about the death of John Hillman 
and the eventual laws to come out of the Mutual Life Insurance Company versus Hillman. Okay. Now. Boy, howdy. I know. Get your ca- get your cowboy hats on, because we're going to 1878. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. That is that's a long time ago. Yes. So, uh, John Hillman was a cattle dealer and occasional ranch hand from Lawrence, Kansas. He was a Civil War vet, and he was born in Indiana. At 30, he married Sally Quinn, who was a barmaid. And this was, like, the prime, like, go west my son time period. So everyone was trying to make their way further and further out across the United States, manifesting all the destinies and whatnot. Oh, yes. American dream and such. Yes, yes. Uh Uh-huh. So only a few short weeks after their wedding, he decided to go west. He wanted to find somewhere where he could be in charge of cattle and have his own ranch. He left in the dead of winter to go as far as possible to find available land so that he could buy it for his family. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Oregon Trail game. Oh my god, yeah. Or perhaps have you seen Cannibal the Musical? (laughs) Uh, I have not seen that, I don't think. I recommend it. It's uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. (laughs) Okay. Joint. It's very good. I it's definitely about the have party. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. I would be into that. Yeah, it's very I definitely good. have the Oregon Trail board game. I can see from where I'm sitting. Excellent. Okay. Actually, I so, think it's a card game. Yeah. All of these things pretty much accurately described how fucked up it is to go west during this time period. Oh my god! Like, I can't. If you never played Oregon Trail, first of all, we're too old for you. Secondly, <laughs> oh god, it hurts. That's I know. True. Right? Uh, secondly, like it is the most upsetting and dissatisfying game to play because, like, you never win; you always die. <laughs> yeah, I think I've probably completed that game, and like, I ha- I could probably count on one hand the amount of times and exactly how many times I've played through that. Like, really, hundreds probably. So a lot of death, a lot of destruction, a lot of dysentery. Yes, all the dysentery. Like, who knew (laughs) shitting yourself would cause you to die so quickly? (laughs) So this is kind of the fear that his wife had. She's like, "Mm, you're going to go in the dead of winter? That's probably not a good idea. Oh, my God. So he thought that going in winter would be a great idea because then he could assess how harsh the conditions would be to move his family. Uh. So I get the idea, but also it's 1878. There's, like, no antibiotics. People are like, oh, there's a snow blizzard. Let's keep going. You know, in a covered wagon. Yeah. So not a great idea, I think. But with him, he decided to take a farmhand by the name of John Brown. So he's like, I got a guy, so it'll be fine. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, before leaving for the trip, Hillman purchased $25,000 of life insurance, which would be nearly $700,000 in current money. Okay. So that's a lot. Yeah. Um, He had help from his wife's cousin, Levi Baldwin, and he was able to secure the amount by going through four different companies. um, Because to get procure that much from one is like next to impossible at this time period. Yeah. And to be honest, insurance companies at this time, if you think insurance has a lot of clauses now, like the contracts from the 1800s are out of control. They would throw in everything conceivable so that you would not get a payout. Gotcha. So he left in December and they were on their way. They reached Medicine Lodge, but the weather became too harsh, so they had to turn back, and they wound up back in Wichita. Finally, by February, they were able to go out again. Uh, This time, they decided to go towards Crooked Creek, and John Brown reported to a neighbor named Philip Briley on March 17th that Hillman had been shot dead at their campsite. Like, really precarious, weird. He's just like, hey... Dude's been shot. So this neighbor called the nearest coroner, which happened to be George Paddock, 
And they came to inspect the scene of death, and they convened an inquest. So on March 18, 1879, John Brown testified that he had accidentally shot and killed Hillman when the rifle he was unloading from their wagon discharged, and Hillman was shot in the head. Accidentally. Accidentally. Now, people who had seen the men in Medicine Lodge also identified the body of John Hillman. And then, on April 10th, 1879, the Medicine Lodge inquest returned a verdict of death by misadventure, a.k.a. accidental death. Um, I just love the term misadventure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, instead of the body being returned to the wife, um, it was actually buried in Medicine Lodge, and then Sally was notified. So she then contacted the insurance companies, because obviously your husband's died. You need to make sure that you have some money. And they let, she let them know that uh, he had passed away. And all four companies were immediately suspicious because, of course, at this time, insurance fraud was also a really big problem. <laughs> we had, you know. Yeah. I mean, H.H. Holmes did a lot of insurance fraud. So, like, we have people faking their own deaths and, like, pretending to be their wives. And they're actually men. Yeah. There's, like, a lot of really interesting stories about oh, yeah. insurance fraud at this time. Yeah. So the body was buried and they're like, you know what? We need to, we need some evidence here. So they disinterred the body and they started another inquest. This time it was going to take place in the same area, but it was going to be paid for by the insurance companies. Now there were two points of contention during this inquest. One of them being John Hillman's teeth and his height were coming back into question. Several people who knew him came to identify him, and all of them were divided on whether or not it was actually him. Now, remember, he had been in the ground for a little bit, okay. a week or so. Okay. And there was no embalming. So, <laughs> right, right. If you know how the body reacts, you have rigor mortis um, where you constrict and then you relax again. Um, you do lose a few inches uh, mm -hmm. when you die. So, just keep all these things in mind. Yeah. So one of the witnesses stated that he had two bad teeth, and then other people said that his teeth looked pretty normal. Someone said that his corpse was too tall. Others said that the height was just right. Ultimately, this inquest, unlike the Medicine Lodge original inquest, returned to finding that the death was of a person unknown and had been caused by, had been caused feloniously by John Brown. So that means that. It was not John Hillman, and that John Brown had done it on purpose. Oh. So completely making it the so, opposite of what it was. So did the insurance not pay out if it was done, like, if it was, like, murder, if it was done on purpose? Was it only accidental? Um, no, they would, they would pay out if it was murder, but the big point was that what they were saying was that it wasn't who it it wasn't John Hillman. Yeah. yeah. So originally, like, so that's like the big thing. It's like, okay, it's not him. Yeah. But then that in infers that they did it to gotcha. just get the insurance payouts. Like they were concocting a scheme to get money. Gotcha. Now, Sally thought that the insurance companies did this on purpose. They, they thought that they basically bought out this coroner and had the the inquest come back in their favor, which obviously it probably did. And she figured that they were doing this to kind of confuse everybody and make it so that they wouldn't have to pay. So you have these two conflicting verdicts from these inquests. So, you know, most courts would be like, eh, let's not even deal with it. Right. But she decided that she was going to file a lawsuit in 1880 because she didn't think that that was right. And you know, she really fully believed that her husband was dead. Yeah. Now, her case didn't go to trial until 1882 because insurance companies are super really good at delaying cases. Oh, my God. But her case would be tried six separate times. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> what? That's a now, lot. Let's just let's just start at the first one because it's going to okay. get crazy. This is going to be a roller right. coaster. There were two problems with the case from the start. Hillman's companion, John Brown, changed his story. So that's never a good thing. 
He originally signed an affidavit and agreed that, you know, yes, accidental shooting, blah, 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 blah. Then he signed another affidavit in which he agreed that the corpse at the, the campground belonged to a young man he and Hillman had recruited to join them on their journey and whom Hillman had shot to death at the campsite. What? So basically absolutely conflicting his story. Okay. The affidavit said that Brown and Hillman had met the man who called himself Joe Berkeley or Joe Burgess. They weren't really sure. I don't know how you don't remember. But they met him a few miles outside of Wichita, and they all decided to head west, and that Joe had agreed to let Hillman vaccinate him for smallpox using his pocket knife and the fluid from his own fresh vaccination. Why is this important? Okay. If you're going to kill somebody, they have to look like you, right? And if you just had a smallpox vaccination, they need to have that scar. Because back when you got smallpox vaccinations, you had a big scar. Because they literally would take a smallpox pus pustule or the blood of someone who's had smallpox and cut you and smear it into the wound. So gross, first of all. And if anyone, <laughs> oh, anytime medicine. Like, I understand why people get hesitant around the uh, vaccinations because that's how they used to be done, but that's not the case anymore. <laughs> no, we got science now. Yes, science has improved from slashing arms <laughs> and smearing blood. Um, <laughs> we got it so bad. <sighs> so he needed if this, you know, if they wanted to kill him and make it look like him, he needed that scar on his arm. So. They were like, all right, awkward, but we get it. The companies located a young woman in Fort Madison, Iowa, who was named Miss Alvinia Caston, who testified in a deposition taken by the company's lawyers that a letter, which was marked Wichita, March 1st, 1879, was from her long-lost fiancé, Frederick Adolph Walters, and was the last letter she ever received to him from him. Now, this letter is important because it talks about John Hillman. The letter said that the writer planned to leave the city soon with a man by the name of John Hillman, who he had met there, who was a sheep trader. The letter also confided that Hillman had promised more wages than he could ever make anywhere else. And that Walters, who was a cigar maker by trade, was never seen again by his family and they claimed that they had never that they all had received a letter similar to that mentioning Hellman's name but they couldn't produce it. Oh. Now this affidavit and these supposed letters put a lot of suspicion onto John Brown and Hellman. Now, the thing that confused me about this is that John Brown said that the guy's name was Joe or Joe Berkeley or Burgess or whatever, but then yeah. this random ass woman says that her fiance who disappeared, who was named Frederick Adolph Walters, was the one with the two. Yeah. So it's a bit confusing. And not only that, you know, back in this time period when there were high profile cases, people would come out of the woodwork saying that they were involved so that they could get some sort of spotlight. So right. or also keep that in mind. <laughs> is it possible that like she had a life insurance policy out on her husband and if he was the one who actually died? You know what I well, mean? Like they weren't married yet. They were oh. they were just engaged. So I don't think that would be possible, but that doesn't yeah, mean but she isn't this be the time when you could just take life whatever. insurance out on anybody you wanted? You can, but it was exceptionally hard for women to get insurance policies for people. Because women aren't people, remember? <laughs> a man could take out insurance. This is how H.H. H. Holmes did it. He took out insurance on random-ass women and their children all the time. But yeah. like, if a woman tried to do that, that yeah, wouldn't be that's possible. That's They'd have true. to have a man with them to sign off for them. Right. right. It was gross. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you yep. couldn't even have a bank account. There was like one famous female rancher... And she only acquired all of her wealth because, like, her husband died. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. This time period fucking sucked to be a lady. <laughs> Amen to that. So the first two juries in the first two trial cases in 1882 and 1885 ended in a hung jury. In the third trial, however, in 1888, the trial judge kept the dearest Alvinia letters away from the jurors. Because they felt that 
it was hearsay. And the jury in this case voted unanimously for Sally Hillman. So, oh, that sounds great. Now, the insurance companies were like, all hail to the no. And they (laughs) filed an immediate appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Of course. The case reached the court and the justices did something a little bit unheard of. They created a new exception to the hearsay rule and said that the letter should have been allowed in evidence because it met the requirements they had just created. Okay. Wrap your brain around that one. (laughs) So, like, they created the requirements and then were like, this should be fine because it meets the requirements we just made? Yes. (laughs) If you think the Supreme Court now is fucked. Okay. Go into the 1870s and 80s. Right. They were still figuring it out back then. They were still trying to figure it all out. Um... (laughs) Uh, but this would actually create new hearsay laws. So this case was again sent back to be retried. And the rule they created, which is now called the state of mind hearsay exception, is still one of the most important rules of evidence in U.S. law. So if you want to find out more, you can go read that. But the transcript information is very difficult to read. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the fourth and fifth trials also ended in a fucking hung jury. It's like, you guys, just give up. Just give up. (laughs) So we have the first, the second hung, the third in favor of Sally, the fourth and fifth hung. Now we're on the sixth here, okay? Wow. (laughs) We're not doing great. The last trial was in 18... 99. We're talking 10 fucking years later, okay? And there was a new witness who came to this trial. And this man was named Arthur Simmons. He was the owner of the cigar factory in Leavenworth where Frederick Adolph Walters had worked. He stated that Walters was in his factory for a few weeks in 1879, which was two months after the death at Crooked Creek. What? Simmons accurately identified Walters from the photographs that they had provided in evidence and also produced written employment records to confirm his testimony. So he was like, yeah, he was here during this time period. Here's his fucking pay stubs. Like, take a look. Yeah. Yeah. So this time the jurors ruled in Sally's favor again, and the companies again appealed and the stupid fucking Supreme court again, overturned her victory. (laughs) oh my god so they did all this but then the companies were like you know what we've wasted so much time and effort on this fucking case and they were growing tired of the constant trial so they just decided to settle out of court after all of that after she won twice and there's four fucking hung juries they're like you know what just kidding never mind blowing all of their money for no reason oh my god so they settled with her for the face amount of the policies plus interest Now, we're not really sure if she received all the money. Probably not, because she probably owed a lot to all of those lawyers for all six cases. Yeah, that would be a hefty sum. They at least paid her out. Yeah. (laughs) Now, not only did this case change hearsay laws, it is also considered one of the first cases to examine the Slayer Rule. Are you familiar with the Slayer Rule? I am... All right. Yes. This, if you're not familiar, we're going to, we're going to show you the world of the Slayer rule. This is a statute in law that states a Slayer, killer, murderer, however you want to say it, cannot benefit from the death of the slain person. Namely, this is used in cases of inheritance and insurance, i.e. why this case is important. Um, while a criminal conviction requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the Slayer rule applies to civil law, not criminal law. So the prosecutor must only prove the murder by a preponderance of the evidence, as in a wrongful death claim, meaning on the civil standard of proof of the balance of probability. So, even a Slayer who is acquitted of the crime of murder can lose the inheritance by the civil court ruling on the estate. Right. Lots of lawyers speak. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So let me break this down for you a little Mm -hmm. bit. (laughs) Um, So what they're saying here basically is the difference between a civil case and a criminal case is 
preponderance of the evidence, which is essentially 50, if you think of it as 51% sure Mm -hmm. that you're ruling in somebody's favor, whereas a criminal uh, criminal case is uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's like 99%. Yeah. That's I had that explained to me in that way, and it made a lot of sense. So the burden mm-hmm. of proof in a civil case is far lower and far easier to prove. Exactly. And when you That's have things is. like civil cases, like hearsay is not as difficult to deal with as it mm-hmm. is with a criminal case. So Correct. the all of the hearsay that they were, you know, all the letters and the witnesses and shit in a civil case would be taken a little bit more seriously then with a grain of salt so that also kind of makes it more difficult so that's why the slayer rule now a lot of people could lose inheritances because of this so yeah now the tale doesn't end there (laughs) we're gonna come all the way to 2006 oh my god really yes Yes. In 2006, Professor Wesson and Dennis Van Gerven obtained permission from a judge in Lawrence, Kansas, to disinter John Hillman's remains. Oh, my God. Okay. The goal was to use modern forensics to identify the body once and for all. Yes, I love this. This was backed by the university out there, and they wanted to show off this professor and their new ability to look into forensic identity. So, the delicate nature of the remains made it impossible to identify with physical methods. So, Wesson and Van Gerven planned to use DNA matching to determine if the bones belonged to John Hillman. Wesson had managed to track down John Hillman's half-brother's grandson, who was named Larray Hillman. And they procured a sample from him. However, the bones did not contain sufficient human DNA to enable testing. So they were too degraded. Oh, man. They didn't stop, though. They kept going. Van Gerven and his colleagues were able to analyze the photographic evidence available, which was the pictures of the the living man. They had pictures of John Hillman, and they had pictures of Frederick Adolph Walters. They also had a picture of the corpse taken during the secondary inquest. Okay. So they used all of these photographs and they did a photographic superimposition. And the pictures taken were then matched using standard anatomical points, which they used the margin of the jaw, the point of the nasal bone in between the eyes, and they established a a scale for this face. Okay. And the results showed a striking similarity between the corpse and Hillman's photographs in their nasal profiles, hairline, eyebrows, and lips. With the results, Van Gerwen concluded that the corpse was more closely matched to John Hillman than Frederick Walters. So they determined that the corpse was, in fact, John Hillman. I mean, it's kind of a bummer that they didn't have enough <laughs> DNA. I mean, that's just the nature of, of decomp, That's right? what happens but, with bones, man. <laughs> yeah. But Especially, like, if they were, if he was embalmed with modern methods, like, there'd probably be a little bit more DNA to evidence to deal with. Yeah. But because as we're talking about 1870s, he was dumped into a grave <laughs> in the middle of right. nowhere. And then right. moved a, a couple times. You know, it's not going to be in great condition. Now, there yeah. was a documentary... Yeah made about the exhumation and it's called Hillman's Bones and you can watch it. Um I believe it's on Amazon Prime right now. Um okay. and Canopy if you have that at your library. <laughs> yeah. Um but you can look it up and watch it. I think it's like a couple bucks to buy anyway. It's not that big of a deal. But they determined that, you know, with all the photographic evidence, that was John Hillman. So Interesting. Now that now that makes that entire case even more of a quandary. <laughs> yeah very interesting yes oh my gosh it's a, str- it's the, a strange one <laughs> the lengths that people will go to mm-hmm. to try and avoid paying out money or oh, yes. get money mm-hmm. is astounding before you try to scam somebody out of an inheritance uh yeah. why don't you check out this podcast My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such. 
a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. All right, folks, that has been our episode for this week. I hope you've enjoyed our our little journey. I always love when we can learn a, a, something new about how the law was created. That's right in my uh, overlap of interest area. <laughs> <laughs> what do we have coming up? What What's the... Well, we're still waiting to hear exactly what day we're going to be at the Elgin French Festival, but we're going to be there. And it starts September 3rd through the 12th. So one of those days, we will oh be there. Oh my God, that's coming up really soon. I know. It's it's scary how soon that's coming up. I feel like we um. started the process <laughs> of doing fringe stuff like months ago. And right? all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is literally like close to a month away. Exactly. So we'll keep you posted as soon as we know the day and time that we're going to be doing things. Um, again, we also don't really know if it's going to be in person or recorded. As of now, they're still yes. pushing for in person. So we'll see. Hopefully we don't have a post-apocalyptic meltdown again. Yeah. Um, but either way, you will see us either on a screen or in the flesh. And uh, tickets will be available soon and all that information. But right now, what you can do is go buy an F button. Now, I know this is going to sound confusing. But before you can even buy a ticket, you need to procure a button. So the buttons are $3. You can go to Side Street Studio Arts or Elgin Fringe Festival and buy them in person or online. They're also doing some random pop-up events where you can buy your button. Because in order to participate, you need your button and you need a pass. So make sure you have that button and make sure you buy your pass when you get the chance. Yes. But we'll keep you posted on when we'll be there. Yes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more like this at badtastecrimepodcast.com. Badtastepodcast.com. <laughs> Website. 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 Just Website.com. <laughs> Website.com. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. It's fine. When you do find it, you can also find the uh, donate and merch links on the website if you want to support the show or if you want to like get a t-shirt or something. Um, we should probably have some new-ish stuff coming, yes. I think, with updated uh, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Updated, updated branding and all that fun stuff now that I've had some time to do it. but um, Maybe we'll put our faces on a shirt. Do you want our faces? Do you want our beautiful faces on a shirt? <laughs> Mm, do i want my beautiful face on a shirt yes is the question (laughs) um so you could check all of that out otherwise i is there anything else that's it for now (laughs) all right um with that being said our sound and editing is by tiff fullman our music is by jason zakshevsky the enigma this has been the bad taste crime podcast we will see you in two weeks Goodbye. Bye. Young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form.